Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. Pleasure to be speaking to you today. If you're watching this in Shoreham or in Hove or at uh, Oasis, hope you've been enjoying our resilient series from the New Testament book of James. We're coming to the end and we've decided to take a couple of weeks to look at the, the passage that you've uh, just heard uh, from verses 13 to 18 of chapter 5. Uh, because really it brings together a few of the themes that we've looked at the right the way through uh, our study of this book. This uh, resilient uh, series is, I guess that question has been in our mind, what does it look like to be resilient? Well, here's three ways not to be resilient. Focus, firstly, focus on how hard our circumstances are. That is something that is tempting to do, perhaps personally, or when we think of the uncertainty in life right now, it's tempting to be focused on that. That's not a way to be resilient. Secondly, to trust in ourselves to navigate through. Again, we're prone to do that. We're prone to rely on ourselves often. And thirdly, be isolated from others and tougher out on our own. Now, James has been teaching us the exact opposite of these things, that actually to be resilient, to navigate through everything that life might throw at you, what you need to be is someone who connects, firstly, connects the circumstance you're in with the eternal truth of who God is and what he has done for you. Secondly, and specifically as we've been reflecting last week, a resilient person is a person who prays, who doesn't rely on themselves, but relies on God. And thirdly, the aspect of depending on one another. And this aspect is, is specifically uh, what we're going to focus a little bit on in this message. Because what James is doing here in this passage is describing this community aspect that helps us navigate all that life throws at us. We've seen it through the whole book of James. Many places it's probably been more implicit that he's speaking to a community. But we have seen many times James has referred to the words we use, how we speak to one another. That's an important dynamic to James. And what he's saying is that the resilient life is lived out in church community. And we see that in this passage here. I want to encourage you as we go through this, uh, it's going to be helpful to you if you have the text in front of you. Verse 13, anyone among you suffering, cheerful, sick. So he's, he's speaking to community and he's saying, within your community, there's going to be people in different places, having different experiences, sometimes contrasting experiences. But you're all to come together and connect with God together. 
In verse 14, he talks about the elders of the church and that the elders have a specific role. And he talks about that and we'll get into that a little bit later. But then in verse 16, he also talks about confess your sins to one another. We need to be open and honest with one another as we navigate through life. And this is a helpful reminder to us because we do. We live in a very individualistic culture and society, increasingly so. But also we live in a society that's increasingly having challenges and problems with mental health issues. And it doesn't take some great insight to see the connection there. I think in the pandemic, we saw that clearly the detrimental effect it has on our well-being to be isolated from community. Well, Scripture has been telling us this all along, that we are not to do the Christian life on our own. We are to do it with brothers and sisters. That is what the church is. In many ways, the church is described as a body. A body has different parts to it, and they have different functions, but they're all dependent on one another. And this, I guess, in one sense, is the twist of the whole series If we've been thinking about how can I be resilient, well, Christian resilience is not an independent resilience. No, we need one another in order to be the resilient people that God wants us to be. And so James is painting this picture of a community, different people with different experience, but coming together Praying, praising, some are suffering, confessing, but praying, forgiving, healing, praying. That's the culture. That's the dynamic of church life. A church community is there to help you navigate through any and every experience of your life. In some ways, that sounds like a very obvious thing for a church pastor to say. Well, the church community is there to support one another. But there is something that's quite radical about this. Now, James is saying, no, every type of experience, whether you're cheerful, whether you're suffering, those highs and lows, the church is to be a home for all of that. And this is quite radical because in other contexts that we are in, social environments and that sort of thing, friendships, what there tends to be is there there are limits on what can be said or what should be said. We have certain friendship groups, maybe friends at the school gate or friends that we've had for years, people that we work with, friends at a social club or a gym or something like that. And we have a certain level of interaction. In that friendship group, these are the things that we kind of talk about. And these are the kind of emotions that you can bring in that context. You can be frustrated or you can be a bit excited. You can share some things, but we don't want oversharing. It becomes too much. There are limits. I'm sure you've been in a workplace. I I know I have. In workplaces where there's really kind of three areas of conversation you can have. Firstly, you can talk about what's on TV or what things that you've watched. Secondly, you can talk about what you're doing at the weekend or what you did last weekend. And thirdly, you can complain about management. And really, the social interactions revolve around those three types of things. And sometimes something else just comes in and you're like, can we navigate this? And some things pass and some things don't. You know, someone in the office gets a puppy. Oh, okay, we can be on board on that. That's, that's not too threatening. Someone in the office gets divorced. 
there's no, there's no roadmap anymore for our social interactions. How, how do, do we talk about that? Do we not talk about that? How do I talk to this individual? Do I say, how are you? Or is that insensitive? Or Sometimes our social interactions, we, they go off and we don't know how to navigate them anymore because, well, this is not really the, the place to talk about that, it seems. And James is saying, no, no, in the church, the church needs to be a safe space for all of those range of experiences the suffering and also the cheerful. If you get cancer or you get a promotion, if you're depressed or you're in love, we need to help one another to navigate through. And the church should be a safe place for that. And the church can be a place for that uniquely. Why? Because of Christ. Because we're all here. Because we're all together. Maybe from very different backgrounds, but we are here together because of Christ. And because we all come to Christ, we come just as we are. So on a Sunday morning, or in our small group, the one who is suffering, this is a place for you. And you stand to sing, and everyone's singing, and maybe you can't even get the words out. But actually, no, the one who is cheerful can minister to you because the one who is cheerful is ready to sing and proclaim the truths of God. And maybe you can't even get the words out, but you can be encouraged. You can draw faith from the fact that someone else is alongside you also receiving from Christ and speaking the truth that maybe deep down in you, you know, but you're finding it hard to articulate. Even in that just small way of coming together as a worshiping community, we encourage one another, we support each other, but more so even in our interactions, in our small groups, in our conversations. That's a place that we can share where we're at, what is going on. And we can, even if we can personally identify with what someone else has experienced, we know that Jesus can. And so we can speak truth. We can speak words of love. We can pray knowing that Christ is with the person and can empathize and helps navigate through. Christ uniquely helps us to be this community. We've not got it sorted though, come on. We can grow in this. I want to encourage you to step forward in this as James is encouraging us to, to be connected, to be in small groups as we start them again after Easter. This is who Christ has made us to be. Suffering and cheerful. I want to move on to the next passage because all, James also, as well as those two categories, also talks about the sick and gives them special instruction. Verse 14, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. I'm going to ask some questions of the text. Maybe they're questions that are in your mind as you're hearing these words. The first question I want to ask is, well, look, James says, if you're sick, go to the elders and get them to pray for you. So the maybe obvious question is, are the elders' prayers so special? Are the elders any more anointed to do this than anyone else praying for someone? He asked, knowing that I am an elder in this church. My answer is yes and no. 
Okay, yes and no. Are they so special? Yes and no. No, because as we've been thinking about last week, when we're thinking about prayer and what it is to be righteous, none of us are righteous by our own merits. None of us are qualified to pray with authority. No, no, our sin disqualifies us all. But as we've been learning about last week, Jesus is the one who saves us, forgives us, and appoints us to pray. And that goes for all of us in Christ. So in one sense, no elders aren't special at all. But also we do have to answer the question yes as well, because James is specific. He says, get the elders to pray. And so he wouldn't have said that for no reason. And so, yes, elders are not super Christians. They're not perfect, but they are called to ministry. And when there is calling by God, there is something that is spiritually significant about that. You, you know that. When you know that God's called you to do something, there is something that's significant, spiritually speaking, about you when you do that thing. And that's the case here. When the elders minister to someone in any way, including praying for the sick, there is something that is important about that. That's not the only, that's not the only reason. I think also... Those who are sick themselves often find it difficult to pray for themselves. Actually, we can feel it's so difficult to pray because I'm struggling, because I am suffering. So even just that act of asking someone else to pray can be just a helpful dynamic in, in general. And often we find that other people have more faith to pray for us and that can be helpful to us. Now, the passage is very clear that it is the Lord who brings healing. It's not a super-Christian. It's not a certain way of praying. It's the Lord who does it. But there is a dynamic of faith that goes on in the praying. You know, Jesus doesn't seem to apologize for saying to someone, your faith has made you well. So even though it is God, the sovereign Lord, who answers prayer and works any miraculous work of healing, somehow our faith is in sort of the mystery and the mix of praying for healing. And so in that sense, even though we don't quite understand it, someone taking a step to say, I want the elders to come and pray, that is a step of faith even just to do that. And as an elder, I know going to pray for someone when they've asked us to come and pray for them and knowing that is in scripture, this is what the elders are to do, that raises faith in me and us as elders to do that as well. And that helps us to pray. It gives us confidence to pray and raises our faith and expectation levels. Does that mean every time that we pray for someone they're made well? No, and that is difficult, and that's confusing. But we continue to pray because, firstly, because the Scripture t tells us to, but also because we have seen many, many people made well. We've seen God heal many people. We see that regularly in this church. People have been healed from cancers. People have been healed from fertility issues. People have been healed from back problems and long-term issues. We've seen that. Um, the scripture tells us to expect that and to pray in faith for that. And so that is why we'll continue to do that. 
Maybe another question that you have about this passage is, what's with the oil? Okay, well, I get the praying, but why does it say anoint with oil? And that's something that does seem uh, strange to us, because when we think of olive oil as what they would have used, we think of food. But actually, even in this country, you turn the clock back to, say, the 1950s, you actually wouldn't have found olive oil uh, in the, the food shops. You could only find it in the chemist, because actually the connection between oil and healing has much longer history. But it's not that the oil itself is healing a person. The passage says it's anointing in the name of the Lord, and the Lord will raise up. So why do it? Well, it's symbolic. We have it many times in the Bible where anointing of oil with oil takes place to symbolize the work of the Holy Spirit. It is God at work in, a, in the person. It is God that brings about a healing, but anointing with oil symbolizes. And sometimes that's just helpful demonstration of what we believe is happening. So what happens then? Let's move on, verse 15 and 16. James writes, And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he'll be forgiven. Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. What's wrong with this passage? What's wrong with those two sentences? The endings of the sentences, is like they're the wrong way around. He says, the sick will be saved. He says, confess your sins and you'll be healed. Surely it's the sick will be healed and the sinner will be saved. James seems to be drawing together these two things of sickness and sin. And that leads us to another question. Is there a link? between physical sickness and personal sin. Let's look at that and let's be careful. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven, James writes. The word if is very important there. For James to be suggesting that someone might not be uh, have sin in their life at all doesn't make any sense. So the way we are to understand the word if is James saying, if the sin, if someone's sin is the cause of the sickness that they are enduring. That's what the if means. If he has committed sins, meaning if sin in his life is causing the sickness. That might take us aback a little bit and we might be slightly troubled with that what someone's sin can actually cause their sickness well it's not the only place in the bible that this connection is made clear to us jesus says it is himself john chapter 5 verse 14 jesus has just healed a paralyzed man and then it says afterward jesus found him in the temple and said to him see you are well sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. And in 1 Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul is writing to these Corinthians because their behavior towards communion in some respects has been sinful and has been wrong. 
And in verse 30, he says, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. So here we have some examples of where individuals' personal sin is contributing to sickness that they are experiencing. Now, probably many of us are surprised by that. And I think there's maybe a number of reasons for that. Part of the reason, I think, is that when we think of sin, we think of things that we do or say or think that are wrong. And we think of it in terms of a single action that is wrong right there. Maybe we do things that are wrong sometimes. But the Bible actually helps us to think more broadly about sin. Sin is not just individual instances of things that are wrong, but sin is powerful. Sin is evil. Sin is an affront to God. And actually, sometimes it's more helpful to think of sin as not just an individual act that happens, but something of a disease, something of a cancer, something of evil, that if we open the door to sin, can actually have a huge effect on every aspect of our lives. And I'm sure whoever you are, you've experienced this. Maybe you've done something that's wrong. Maybe you've, you've been deceptive. You've told a lie. And you think, well, it's just that. I just did that thing over there that's wrong. But what you realize is that that starts to have an effect on every other aspect of your life. It affects you emotionally. You carry a burden of what you have done. It affects you spiritually. You struggle to pray because you know that is wrong and you know it's put you out of relationship with God. But also it affects you with your relationships with other people as well. Sometimes you, you feel more withdrawn. You don't want to speak to people. You pull away from people. It's affecting you in all sorts of direction and it can even affect your mental well-being and even physically you can have symptoms because as people, our emotional, spiritual, physical selves are all connected. And when we open the door to sinful behavior, especially habits of sinful behavior, it can have a very deep effect on us. Before we go any further, is all sickness caused by personal sin? No, because James says, if it is, okay? So in many cases, it won't be. But in this room that I'm speaking into right now, with this amount of people, undoubtedly, this will be the case that for some of us, we have opened the door to sinful behavior, sinful attitude, wrong beliefs, lies, that is having a deep and profound effect on us and even perhaps manifesting in physical unwellness. Common things that can be, that can be is sinful habits that are secret, things that we do look at, that other people don't know, we keep it secret. And it has, begins to have a power over our lives. Lies. Maybe we're living in deception of others and we think we're getting away with it, but it's actually having a toll on our lives. If you're in that, you know what I'm talking about right now. For others of you, it's lies that you actually tell yourself. It's not just seen as individual actions. It's actually an ongoing 
outlook on life. You tell yourself that is stuff that is wrong. You tell yourself that you're worthless. You tell yourself that nobody loves you. You tell yourself that you're a failure. That is sinful. And it's, it's, it's causing you to live in that sinful place. And actually that's detrimentally harming you. And another common one would be bitterness, unforgiveness. Unforgiveness is wrong. If we have been forgiven by God, to withhold forgiveness from someone else, that is wrong. And that is going to cause, if you hold on to it and say, I can't forgive them, that can sometimes manifest in physical illness in you because you're holding, you're allowing sin to take root in your life. You need to be free from that. You need to be free from that. You're living in that place and you're not free. How do you know? Maybe some of you are thinking, well, is that me or is that not me? Some of you are ill, you're unwell, and you're thinking, well, yeah, there is sin in my life. So are those two things connected? Let me help you with that. 1 John 1 says, if we say we don't have sin, we deceive ourselves. Okay, so none of us are free from the presence of sin. But here's the thing. If you are in Christ, you are free from the power of sin. Romans 6 verse 14. For sin will have no dominion, no rulership, no control over you since you are not under law but under grace. And Galatians 5 verse 1. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Oh friends, some of you have. Some of you have given yourself over to sinful habits and sinful attitudes, sinful beliefs about yourself, sinful beliefs about God, and you've come under that trap and you're stuck. You're stuck in that sinful place and you, you, you kind of know that God loves you, but you don't feel it. And you, you, you want to believe that he's forgiven you, but you still feel condemned. And maybe you know, yeah, I think, I, I know, I think, I think Christ has, has saved me. But you can't break free from controlling behaviors and thoughts. That's the diagnosis. What does James prescribe? Praying and confessing brings healing and forgiveness. And this is the thing. You see, it's very simple what James is saying. But the reason that many Christians get stuck and get trapped in patterns of sin is because we don't want to confess. We don't want to bring things into the light because we are ashamed. Because we think if I bring it to someone else, if I speak to someone, if I confess it to someone else, I'm going to be condemned. That's not right. That's not what the scripture says. The scripture says the, the, the gospel community is the light where as things are brought into the light, what do they find? Not condemnation, but forgiveness, but for healing. The sick are raised up. The sinner is forgiven. The hopeless is healed and restored. You see, we expect condemnation. We get forgiveness. We get healing and we get salvation. That is Christ. That is Christ's work. That is the work of the church to minister that to one another and say, come into the light, come into the truth. He has forgiven you. That's the promise of this passage. 
So what do we do? Where do we go from here? Some of you are sick, and you know what? It's got absolutely nothing to do with sin, and you're, you're sick, and we want to pray for you, and maybe you want to come forward to the elders, and, and in the various sites, you're, whoever's hosting the meeting and the site leader will direct you how uh, you can take a next step in that. But I also want to speak to those who are trapped in sin right now, your patterns of sin in your life that is keeping you trapped. And what I want to say to you is this. There is nothing that Jesus is going to do today to change that. What? Yeah, you heard me right. There is nothing that Jesus is going to do today to change the situation you're in. Yeah. What, what, wait a minute. I, I thought Jesus was the healer. Yeah, he is. I thought Jesus was the forgiver. Yes, he is. I thought Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Yes, he did. I thought Jesus rose again on the third day. Yes, he did. I thought Jesus sent his Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit power that raised him from the dead to live in us. Yes, he did. So why is he not going to do anything for me today? Because he's already done it. He's already done it. Your forgiveness, your healing, your freedom, he sorted it. You're just not living in the good of it. Where do I get this from? Roman, I want to take you to Romans 6. Listen to this. Listen to this if you're trapped. We have been united with him in his death. Verse 6, our old self was crucified so that we are no longer enslaved to sin. Verse 7, for one who has died has been set free from sin. It's all done. It's in the past. You see, you're trying hard. You're trying hard to get yourself free. You're trying hard to say the right prayer. You're trying hard. If I just go to that meeting, if I just say this prayer, if I just follow this pattern, then maybe I'll get some freedom. And you don't realize that you just need to wake up to the truth that he has set you free already. You're living in a lie that says you're trapped, but you're not. He's got your freedom. And you, just, you need to know that truth. You've died with him. Your old way of life is gone. You are free. The enemy comes, oh, you can never get free. And you need to say, no, I can get free. You need to start living in the truth of this scripture. You need to start speaking it to yourself. You need to realize that the resurrected Christ has done the work. We are two weeks out from Easter. I'm going to spoil the surprise for you. He's risen. He's, he's actually risen. He's triumphed over sin and death. He's done the work. So that you can be free. So that you are free. If you are in him, you are free. That's why James is so matter of fact in this passage. That's why he says you're suffering. Pray to God. You're cheerful. Praise God. You're sick. You're, the Lord will raise you up. You've committed sin. Yeah, you'll be forgiven. If you confess, yes, you'll be healed. How can he say that? Because it's the Lord who raises up. He is the Lord who has been raised. It's done. We can come to him today in our sickness, in our struggles, with faith and expectation. He's done the work. He's done the work. Believe him today. Believe him that he's died for you. Believe that he's risen for you.
Let's trust him. Let's come to him. Let's pray with expectation and faith that he might meet us right where we are today. Lord God, I ask right now that you confirm this truth, the truth of your word by the work of your Holy Spirit and set people free. Bring healing, bring forgiveness, bring restoration for your name's sake. Amen.